Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, H.J. Doom, and as 2022 draws to a close, it's just time for me to squeeze in one more book, and to say it's one that I've been looking forward to would be an understatement. But before that, I have the pleasant duty of thanking some new patrons. Firstly, I'd like to thank John for increasing his pledge. Thank you so much for that, John. Much appreciated. I've also got to thank Tyler and Ross, who are both new patrons, whose support has been extremely appreciated. As a result of their generosity and the ongoing generosity of all my supporters, I'm going to be aiming to produce a bonus episode of this podcast every single month in 2023, so everyone listening will benefit from their largesse. Thank you once again, and let's get into Battleblade Warrior. This book has loomed large in my memory since I began this podcast. Indeed, when I started, one of my private goals to motivate myself was to get as far as Battleblade Warrior, because I remember absolutely loving this one as a child. Although the book I probably remember most clearly is The Forest of Doom, which is where I started with fighting fantasy, there was something about this one that simply spoke to me. It's hard reaching that far back into my memories, but looking back, I think there were probably two reasons. The first reason is that I have a real thing for stories about heroism in the face of almost certain defeat. I love an apparently doomed last stand deep in my bones, and the setup for Battleblade Warrior is that of a city under siege fighting, even though they know that the force which faces them is too strong for them to possibly overcome. The Siege of Helm's Deep is my favourite set piece in The Lord of the Rings, and growing up, one of my very favourite fantasy novels was David Gemmell's Legend, which is another story of a last stand against seemingly insurmountable odds. This is absolutely just my idea of a great narrative starting point. The second reason is that this is a book which is situated firmly in the expanded setting which was laid out in Titan, the wonderful guide to the world of fighting fantasy, that was released a year or so before this volume came out. Mark Gascoigne, the author of this book, was responsible for writing both Titan and Out of the Pit, the guides to the world and the monsters of fighting fantasy respectively. And it was really thrilling to me to read about the siege of Vimorna in Titan and then have the opportunity to affect the outcome in Battleblade Warrior itself. I'm going to be so curious to see if this book can possibly live up to the hype it has in my head. Now, Mark Gascoigne only wrote one entry in the series, but despite that, his fingerprints are all over fighting fantasy, because as well as doing more world-building than anyone else through Titan and Out of the Pit, he also created Advanced Fighting Fantasy, the spin-off RPG, which enabled players to create their own adventures in the world he'd done so much to flesh out. He also wrote a pair of novels set in the fighting fantasy world, and... Uh, I think after Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, he's probably the most important creator in the franchise. And beyond fighting fantasy, he's been a key figure elsewhere in the realms of gaming media. He worked for Games Workshop Fiction Imprint Black Library during a key period of its expansion. And he's been all over British publishing over a long and storied career. Battleblade Warrior is a story in which Lizardmen feature heavily, so it's great to see Alan Langford, who did the illustrations for Island of the Lizard King, back doing the internal art. It's a nice piece of internal continuity, especially because he does do pretty good lizards. 
Uh, the cover art, which shows a lizard with a big spear riding a massive pterosaur, is by Dave Gallagher, and it's awesome, highly dynamic, and raises lots of lovely questions which only reading the book could possibly answer. Um, there's also a nice map on the inside cover which shows the lay of the land. I assume it's by Alan Langford because there's no separate credit. In terms of the rules, we're in classic fighting fantasy skill, stamina and luck territory, and Mark Gascoigne is to be congratulated, I think, for not attempting to create an entire new system, something most first-time authors seem to find irresistible for some reason. The rules also make explicit that while neither stamina nor luck can ever go above their initial score, skill can do so but only on rare occasions, which means you can now use a magic sword without breaking the letter of the rules as written, so that's nice. My beloved provisions are present and correct, each restoring four stamina, but this time out you may only carry four provisions total, which seems like a much more sensible limit than the overly generous ten. There's no magic potion of skill, stamina or luck to be had, and I guess the people of Vimorna probably burned through most of their magical potions during the early parts of the siege. So I've created a character, who I've decided to name Sriracha Glottalstop, and they have a skill of 10, a stamina of 20, and a luck of 11. Without any further ado, and with some apologies for my slightly husky voice, I'm coming off the back of a, uh, a cold, and uh, it's left me with a rather deeper voice than I'm uh, usually used to, so uh, I hope that doesn't affect your enjoyment too much. Let's get into Battleblade Warrior. So the intro is uh, quite lengthy, I would say, but uh, it does all look like good stuff, so I'm not going to complain overly about that. Um, the title of the intro is uh, Vimorna Besieged, which I think is awesome. And there's a lovely, lovely picture of desperate warriors fighting off a lizard man attack on the walls of Vimorna. There's a hand-to-hand -hand combat with a horned lizard with a brutal-looking scimitar. There's a wonderfully realised pterosaur being stabbed in the moment of coming down to try and pluck a fighter from the walls. It's just great. So, by Morna besieged. As the might of the Lizardman Empire smashed like an ocean breaker against its walls once more, the besieged city of Vimorna shuddered, but held. Along the ragged lines of its shattered walls, desperate men and women fought, though they were dying on their feet. Their energy sapped by six years of starvation and malnutrition, the battered troops held firm through sheer force of will. For every pace the reptilian troops gained, the defenders vowed a hundred lizard corpses would lie. But the lizard men could bear such losses, and more, for the might of the lizard king's armies was colossal. Soon, very soon, the evil humanoids would break Vimorna's last ring of defences, even if they had to dismantle the city stone by stone, brick by brick. The empire of the lizard kings would not rest until all the lands of southern Alansia were ensnared under its cruel domination. This is nicely written, I would say. Inside the city, which is a subheading. All this you know, for your mother is Queen Periel, the lion-hearted woman who now commands Vimorna's defences. Your father, Alexandros II, was struck down by a poisoned javelin in a counter-attack to keep the reptilian hordes from the outer wall of the castle at the centre of the city. His death made a warrior of your mother, 
but this and years of constant bombardment have changed her beyond belief. Where once she was beauty and grace, she is now thin-lipped sternness, her eyes red ringed through lack of sleep and the side effects of her sorceress searches for supernatural aid. A lot of S sounds there. Night after night, the queen pleads with the gods and their servants for divine help against the overwhelming odds, and each night she receives no answer. It is as if there is a war in the heavens as well as on Titan, and the forces of evil and chaos are winning there too. Your father's death made a warrior of you, and now you ride into battle alongside your mother. Between raids and wall duties, you help tend the sick, arrayed in rows in the great hall of the castle. There are wounded warriors by the score, but also a great many women and children, injured by flying missiles, or simply suffering from malnutrition. Food is now very scarce and strictly rationed. It is only owing to good planning that it has lasted so long. Just cool, because it ties into the fact that you only get four sets of provisions... Mark Gascoigne there making a very, very small adjustment to the rules in order to make them consistent with the background he's created. Sometimes even the smallest wrinkle in the rules can speak very loudly about how the world is. Troubled dreams. What is perhaps worse than the lack of food is the constant lack of sleep. It would be hard enough to sleep anyway with the bombardment of rocks and exploding balls of sulphur but each night the enemy conjures up spirits and demons which howl around the towers of the castle until dawn. Their screaming, often joined by sorcerous thunder and lightning, would keep all but the most desperately tired awake. However, on this night, even you sleep. You spent most of the evening helping to put out a massive fire blazing in the south tower of the castle, started by a flaming brand which had hurtled into the city, from one of the many giant catapults stationed outside the reach of the city's archers. When the fire was out, you didn't bother returning to your quarters in the main keep, but just found an empty corner, pulled your stained cloak over yourself, and slept. Again, nice little detail there, showing that you really are exhausted, and showing also that the work of a siege is much more than simply fighting against the lizard men it's also a whole bunch of really grueling and draining maintenance tasks to try and keep the castle standing long enough to repel these attackers for another day dawn breaks and you awake savoring the warmth of your corner and the light on your eyes before opening them but the castle is somehow different you lie still for a moment before sitting up with a start there's nothing but silence Everywhere is quiet, so quiet you can hear your breath coming in short gulps as you rub the sleep from your eyes with your dirty fists. You find yourself alone in a corner of the inner hall. All you can see are the bare, rubble-strewn flagstones, the first traces of weeds poking up between them, as if stretching for the sunlight which beams through the gaps in the shattered roof. By Telex's golden sword! you exclaim aloud, using the oath your mother always forbade you to utter in those far-off days before the siege. The siege! You remember? The siege! And... Mother! What in the name of all the heavens is going on? Indeed you may ask, comes a voice from behind you. You spin round and look up in wonder. Atop the ruined wall, before you, stands a glowing figure, 
a hefty warrior armed for battle and clad in brilliant golden armour. About his feet stalks a lion, which must be fully grown, though it is dwarfed by the radiant figure. Know you not who I am, my child? You called on me just a moment ago, though in truth I was here awaiting you, the warrior intones, in a voice that rumbles like thunder around a distant mountain. His gleaming emerald eyes stare deep into yours, flashing with supernatural power. I think this might be one of the best written introductions we've had so far. The Task of Telek You drop to your knees, more out of amazement than respect, for you now know that the figure before you is Telak the Stormbearer, Lord of Courage and patron of all who bear arms against evil. My lord, you stammer, what would you have of me? Do not be afraid, rumbles the heavenly voice, for you must listen carefully to what I tell you. The dark forces that oppose both of us are gathering for a final assault. Even as I speak, demonic legions begin to batter the gates of my ethereal palace just as they batter the doors of yours. What is needed is an earthly victory against evil, and soon, to divert the Lizard King's deathless masters away from my doors, so I can properly come to thy mourner's aid. Know you of a place called Dertelekin, Telex Mountain? It is one of the twin peaks in the Lion Heights far to the northeast of Vimorna. You must go there and find a weapon which will aid you and your city against evil. Seek out the man they call Lascar. The golden warrior's voice fades as if his attention were elsewhere, and the lion at his legs growls. I must depart to secure my own gates. Go, serve me well. Wheresoever I can, I will aid you for you are a warrior now, and under my protection. The golden warrior and his lion fade away, and a rough hand is shaking you awake. Through the musty gloom of the inner hall you can see the others rising and shaking themselves. From all around you comes the sound of coughing, stamping, chattering, mingled with the distant sounds of battle. The mission. It is decided, then. All the omens are with you. You must depart as soon as you are able. Your mother looks stern, but you know from her eyes that she is dreading leaving you on such a dangerous mission. Around the room, everyone shares Queen Periol's mingled look of trepidation and resolve, but all nod their heads at the decision. You will leave a few hours before dawn to give you the best chance of crossing through the enemy's encampment. In the darkness, you may be able to pass through their lines, though I still fear for you. I was chosen, mother, you state simply and leave to prepare for your journey. So, there's the introduction. We move on to section one, and on the facing page, there's a nice little picture of a Lizardman warrior atop a Triceratops, with a beautifully um, surreal-looking sun behind it. It's really, really good. Dawn is not far away. All night, the bombardment of the city has continued, but somehow you manage to rest and relax a little, in preparation for your journey. Now, with the moon set and the first few glimmers of light on the horizon, you are in the secluded room of your mother, Queen Periel, making your final preparations for your journey. You are dressed in sturdy clothes, but with minimal armour so that you can move quickly. You have a strong cloak to protect you from the elements and to keep you warm at night. There is a large rucksack filled with supplies, four provisions, and your trusty sword and hunting knife. While you are getting ready, 
The queen goes to a chest and pulls three items from it. These belong to your father, she says, and I know he would want you to put them to good use. You may take two of the objects. They are a bow and three silvered arrows, a bottle containing a pale liquid, and a small glass globe filled with a swirling cloud of dust specks. So, uh, for the first item, I think we'll definitely go for the bow and three silvered arrows. That sounds importantly... Uh, like, there's a big pterosaur on the front. There's a big pterosaur on the facing page of the background. I think we probably want the ability to shoot pterosaurs out of the sky with silver arrows. The bow is made from finely worked bone and has a great many charms and sigils carved into it. Its three silvered arrows are turned to perfection, and you know that whenever you fire one, you will be almost guaranteed of hitting and destroying your target. So that's a, uh, a cool and suitably heroic item. So uh, we've got another item to choose. We can go either for the swirling globe or the vial of liquid. I think we'll go for the vial of liquid. Um, maybe it's some festive eggnog. We can but hope. The pale liquid is a healing balm, which you may take whenever you need it most. When you wish to use its soothing powers, you turn to a specific paragraph and then, I guess, turn back. So, that's a good item, and it's clearly, clearly eggnog. What's more healing than eggnog? Uh, we now have both of our items, so we will venture onwards. You have several options as far as routes and your method of travelling are concerned. After long discussions with Vimorna's most learned experts, those who are still alive at any rate, it was agreed that you could leave the city with a band of warriors who would try and force their way through the enemy lines and enable you to flee from the besieged city on foot, heading north and then east to your goal. Alternatively, you could take the same route but attempt to leave the city in secret, sneaking through the enemy lines just before dawn. Finally, you could sneak down to the docks and attempt to steal a boat which would take you a fair distance up the river Vimorn before you head east to your goal. So, do we wish to break out by force, sneak away before dawn, or try and steal a boat? Those are all brilliant options. I think... I don't particularly want to uh, thin our already parlously thin defenders further by um, making people do a suicide attack on my account. So, I think that it's a choice between sneaking out or stealing a boat... Why walk when you can sail? Let's try stealing a boat. You sneak along through the rubble nearer and nearer to the boats. Test your luck. With a luck of 11, I roll an 8. I am lucky. Luck now reduced to 10. You reach the boat with ease. Hastily throwing your equipment into a corner, you push the small craft out into the river. You're free of Vimorna. Add two luck points. Luck now back up to the maximum of 11. I'm not sure about doling out luck points for being lucky. Luck in these games is a resource. I think as you successfully make use of that resource, the resource should deplete. Um, and if there's one big thing I would have maybe changed about fighting fantasy rules at the outset, I think probably it would have been that you only lose luck when you successfully test your luck so that you're not further penalised for being unlucky because the penalty is whatever happens as a result of you failing a luck test. Anyway, um, we've made it. That's cool. 
The Vimorn River is broad and slow-moving. Its name means dark waters, for it carries black silt washed down from the Lion Heights far to the east, which is where you are headed. Which course will you follow as you row upriver? Will you hug the north bank, the south bank, or travel midstream? Um, so I'm having a look at the uh, the map. It seems as though the um, south bank will be the one that abuts Silla Char, which is the uh, the lizard's homeland, I think. Um, so I feel as though the north bank is probably going to be the safest. I definitely want to be near a bank, I think, because I want the ability to scramble ashore should that prove necessary. So yeah, we'll hug the north bank. These are uh, great decisions we're being asked to make in the early going. Keeping close to the northern shore, you paddle against the gentle current of the slow-moving river. The riverbank is sparsely vegetated at first, but the trees become thicker as you come closer to the jungle. There is no sign of any more lizardmen, but you keep a wary eye open anyway, suggesting that had I made a different decision, it's possible we could have come across some lizardmen, so... Go me, making a good decision, which doesn't happen very often on this show. Suddenly, an angry shout comes from the direction of the north bank, and instinctively you dive for the bottom of the boat. Arrows thud into the wood. Roll one die. If you roll a one or a two, you are hit by an arrow, deduct two stamina points. I roll a six, so I suffer no injury. By the time you peer out again, your boat has floated past the danger. In the centre of the river, a huge galley sculls by and disappears into the haze again. Thanking your stars that you chose to hug the bank, you row on. Hey! I'm making such brilliant decisions. Such brilliant decisions. Giving thanks to Telak for ensuring your safety, though it was a very close shave, you paddle on upriver. The Vimon sweeps north in a wide, slow-moving curve, and you have no trouble guiding your small craft along. The river curves again, heading east. You paddle along, keeping an eye open on both sides for any sign of trouble. After an hour or so, the river is joined by a tributary flowing from the south. The Lizard River flows from the depths of Scylla Char. As you pass the place where it joins the Vimorn, you give thanks that you are not having to go up that waterway. It is at that moment that you notice three boats heading towards you from the southern shore. Some peril, I imagine. Mark Gascoigne doing a really good job on filling in the geography of where you're travelling in a way that really paints the landscape, but without getting bogged down in excessive detail. I'm really enjoying that side of it. Each of the three boats, narrow, sleek and low in the water, carries two swamp goblins. Small darts from their blowpipes start to fall in the water around you. You can take evasive action, shoot them from a distance with your bow if you have one, or sail right at them and prepare to attack. So three boats, two swamp goblins apiece. Uh, I don't think the bow and arrow is the way to go. I'm going to save those for big flying dinosaurs. I mean, I could only take out three of them anyway. Um, six swamp goblins seems like a lot to try and just stab, although goblins are famously rubbish. So I think we'll go with evasive action. That seems like the smart choice to me. Roll two dice. If you roll equal or below your skill, one thing happens. If you roll above your skill, another thing happens. I roll a four. That is well below my skill. 
You manage to evade the boats, but they give chase. Roll one die. If you roll a one to three, you are hit by as many blowpipe darts. Okay. And we must deduct one stamina point for each before we leave the goblins behind. So, how many darts? I roll a five, so no darts. Not only am I making absolutely brilliant decisions, just unimpeachably brilliant, brilliant decision-making by me, also rolling really well. This is definitely, definitely not going to come unstuck in uh, the later stages. The goblins are well behind you, but the river is now rough with white water rapids, which are making headway difficult when you keep going or pull over to the bank. I have a well-documented terror of drowning, uh, so I don't much like the idea of tangling with these white water rapids. I think... It's time for Shanks's pony. We'll pull over to the bank and we'll uh, stretch our legs a bit, I think. The current becomes very strong alongside the riverbank, whipping the water into a small whirlpool that threatens to wreck your flimsy craft. Roll two dice against your skill. Seven. Another great roll. I've rolled less than my skill, so hopefully that means we're going to be fine. Your arms are strong and manage to pull your boat clear of the current. You beach the small craft against the north shore and remove all your equipment. You may stop here and eat some provisions while you take in your surroundings. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to have to check the rules. Yep, yep, we can actually only eat provisions when the text instructs us that we may do so. Now, that can be a little bit problematic in the sense that sometimes you'll be on incredibly low stamina and the book just won't give you an option to eat provisions even though nothing of any particular high drama that requires immediate attention is happening and that can feel a little cheap but what you're doing when you put stuff like this into the text rather than outside the text is that you're constraining variants and so long as Mark Gascoigne gives us a reasonable number of chances to rest and eat provisions, I'm basically okay with it. It also means you don't get that slightly bizarre thing that I often make fun of, where you kind of like pause to eat a five-course meal two paragraphs after you last ate a five-course meal. So it can also be a great way of just just keeping the, um, the fiction alive. But I don't need to eat provisions because I haven't taken any damage yet because I'm awesome. You are on the edge of the jungle. You may either plunge straight into the jungle and head east, or you could head north along the fringes of the jungle before turning east further on. Now, the jungle, which is called the Night Shriek Jungle, borders onto the Axe Head Plains, which seems like a reasonably okay place. Um, yeah, I think we'll go along the edge of the jungle. Jungles strike me as being very dangerous full of snakes and spiders and BBC film crews, uh, just people you don't want to meet. So I think, yeah, we'll hug the edge of the jungle. Keeping the dark, forbidding tangle of the jungle always on your right hand, you decide to head northwards. Away to the west is the southern extent of the Axehead Plain. As you gaze out over it, you notice that something is burning on the horizon. Could it be Vimorna? No. It's too far north, you decide. It must be somewhere else under attack. You peer further south, but cannot pick out the city from the haze. 
when you keep heading north or change your mind and head directly east. Oh, well, again, on the map, there is uh, to the northeast of Vimorna, the city of Capra. It looks like quite a small place on the map, but I imagine that could be the lizard men's target, assuming it is lizard men and not some other incredibly evil group doing their best to, to, to mess with South Valencia. Uh But I think rather than heading north into potentially a second war zone, I think we will change our mind and head directly east. You plunge into the green, leafy darkness of the jungle. Little light penetrates here, but eventually you grow accustomed to it. Your eyes start picking out hanging vines, birds high up in the lofty trees, monkeys swinging and chattering with one another. It is the cries of the creatures that are most surprising. From up ahead, a peculiar roaring echoes through the trees. Will you head on, or retrace your steps and head north? Uh, I think the peculiar roaring is less threatening to me than a city on fire, so we will press on. After several hours of hacking your way through the jungle, you seem to be making very little progress and your morale is falling rapidly. Eventually, though, you come to where the land dips. Ahead of you is more thick jungle, but running alongside it is a shallow depression several leagues long, which is marshy and damp. Will you continue through the jungle or follow the depression? Uh, I guess we will follow the depression. Uh, it appears that maybe my brilliant decision-making has already peaked. The ground is very spongy and damp. You sink into it up to your ankles, but luckily no further. After only a few dozen careful paces, the ground hardens again, and you can go on as before. Hooray. Noon passes into afternoon and you continue to hack your way through the tightly packed vegetation. As the sun starts to cool you, you can stop and eat some provisions. If you have none, you may search for more, unless you would rather continue walking. I have still four provisions, so uh, I can only carry a maximum of four, so uh, we just have to carry on walking. The sun is setting and suddenly the jungle is a very cold and unfriendly place. You must find somewhere to sleep before it becomes too dark to see. You could climb up into the branches of a low tree or settle down in some soft bushes in the undergrowth. One of the things that you generally don't see on those kind of um, survivalist programs is people actually climbing trees to sleep. Um, and I think it's because it's quite easy to fall out of a tree. So, uh, based on the fact that, that I don't want to tumble out of a tree and break my neck, I'm going to settle down in some soft bushes. Covered by your cloak, you lie in the soft undergrowth and wait for sleep to come. The moon rises between the trees as you lie listening to the croaks, whistles and chirps of the jungle's nocturnal inhabitants, until you fall asleep. You awake with a start and try, unsuccessfully, to sit up. You struggle but find you cannot move anything except your eyelids as you are trapped inside a huge, matted spider's web. You curse and wriggle but to no avail. Then you see the spider. It is easily the same size as your head, covered in black and orange stripes like those of a wasp. It wriggles down until it is perched on your chest and stares up at you. Will you struggle to pull yourself free? Strain to reach the dagger at your belt or lie still. Hmm. 
This is a uh, sticky situation in every sense of the word. I don't like any of these choices. I feel as though struggling to pull myself free will just make the, the webbing get tighter. I mean, I might as well just be covering myself with salt and pepper and delicious ketchup, I think, if if I just choose to lie still. Um, so out of a bad set of options, I think straining to reach the dagger is uh, is the one. We get to make a roll uh, against skill. Four. So my decision-making may have got back to the usual incompetent level you've come to know and expect from me, but my rolling is still absolutely on point. Your hunting knife slashes out and cuts away part of the web. Pulling yourself upright, you are faced by the wasp spider. You have no time to find your sword and must defend yourself with your knife. Okay. Um, I do not care for this wasp spider. I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before, so forgive me if I repeat myself. My phobia of wasps was, when I was younger, sufficiently paralysing that I once jumped out of a punt into a river because a wasp was getting up in my business. I do not like wasps. I'm sort of okay with spiders up to a certain point. Like, I'm absolutely fine with little ones, but they get to a certain size and I kind of become much less okay with them. Uh, But a wasp that is also a spider, or a spider that is also a wasp, is not something I'm comfortable with on any level. Uh, The wasp spider has a skill of six, happily it only has two stamina. Fair enough. It's a big spider and it's as big as my head, but it's it's not that huge. And it does 1d6 damage rather than the usual two points of damage because it's very, very poisonous. So, for the first time, somehow, after recording for about 40 minutes, I'm going to roll some dice. I probably didn't actually need to... uh, do the music sting there because, I mean, it's one round of combat against a skill six opponent. I probably could have done that live on mic because it lasted exactly one round. Stab the wasp spider. Very grateful to have done so. You cut a track to the riverbank and wash the sleep and sweat from your face. You check your equipment and eat some more provisions. None of the plants around here seem to be edible, but you are guaranteed to find more on your journey. As you are glancing around at the bushes, though, you notice something potentially more interesting. A strange pile of overgrown rocks. Do you investigate or set off again on your journey? If there is a weakness in the way this is written, it's that it can be a little bit tricky to see how some paragraphs relate to other paragraphs. So it feels as though this section has come from another section that provides a more appropriate context than the fight with the wasp spider. A very difficult thing to get right in any adventure game book. I'm not going to come down too hard on it, but occasionally, as I've been playing, I have had to go back and check that I've gone to the right paragraph. Um, Like it says, eat some more provisions. It's like, well, I didn't eat any provisions in the last section. So, yeah, it seems a bit weird, but I guess that means I do have to knock some provisions off Again, it hasn't been explicit about that, but yeah, I'm knocking off a portion of provisions, um, which I'm guessing is just going to be some water biscuits, since uh, Vimorna's really, really hurting for food. I can't imagine there's anything much more 
interesting than that in my satchel at this point. Anyway, do we want to investigate the rocks? Of course we do. Of course we do. Cutting away the plants, you find a pile of smooth worked stones. No, not a pile. A wall. It seems as though people actually lived and built in the midst of this dense jungle. Will you investigate further or set off again on your journey? I mean, I do really want to investigate jungle ruins because jungle ruins are awesome. But at the same time, I do also want to play as though I'm actually in a desperate race against time, which I kind of am. So I think we'll just set off again. You continue on your way, hacking at the tangled undergrowth. The sun rises, the night's animals creep back into their dens to sit out the scorching day in cool shadows. Different creatures screech and chatter in the branches above you. Soon you are bathed in sweat, wishing you could stop, but always pressing on. Yeah, I mean, it feels as though maybe travelling at night might have been more sensible, but, I mean, without any kind of usable light source, I think hacking my way through a jungle in pitch blackness is probably a way to an early grave. But, uh, yeah, nice detail of the uh, the unpleasantness of trying to make your way through a proper wilderness environment. It's no good. You simply must rest after your rough night. You collect more provisions and sit down in the shadows at the edge of a small sunlit clearing to eat. Okay, so nuts and berries time, I guess. The afternoon sun is very warm. It's quite pleasant in the shade. Just a brief pause, you promise yourself, unbuckling your sword and laying it beside you. You close your eyes. The trees rustle in the breeze, though you don't feel it on your face. You open one eye to see your sword, still in its scabbard, apparently moving across the grass under its own steam. You spring to your feet. All around you, swinging in the branches, are hordes of small six-limbed monkeys. Krells! As you move, they start chattering excitedly, and the noise is deafening. The one dragging away your sword is just about to swing off into the trees. Will you leap and attack it with your knife, shoot it with an arrow from your father's bow if you have it, or simply chase after the creature, making threatening noises? And there is a picture of the Krells, and they look like monkeys with an extra pair of arms, what can I tell you? Maybe a little nod to Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom books. He loves an ape with extra arms. So, uh, is it overkill to shoot this cheeky, cheeky monkey? in the face with a bow. I'm going to submit that it is not because I really don't want to lose my sword. So um, in one of the least heroic things I've ever done, I'm just going to shoot a monkey. The enchanted arrow flies true and the krell is pinned to the branch, dead. Seeing their friend's fate, the rest of the creatures leap screaming and chattering into the trees. You manage to retrieve your sword and belt and buckle it back on around your waist before moving on. Uh, don't feel great about killing the monkey, but is what it is. I mean, I feel as though negotiating with the monkey would have been an even more foolish decision. Reminding yourself to be more vigilant in future, you march on, hacking your way through the jungle's tangled undergrowth. The going becomes easier as you find the rhythm again, but you will never be used to having to slash a path for yourself. Probably doing my sword an absolute mischief as well. Throughout the day, Ariella the sun goddess blazes down on you, Every step you take is accompanied by a startling screech or growl. You continue to head east through the ferociously tangled undergrowth. Around noon, you have a run-in with a small panther, though the creature scampers away and you don't know which was more terrified, you 
or it, um, then there is a square bracket followed by two asterisks and another square bracket suggesting that there's a code going on here that I am not privy to. As the sun starts to sink behind you, you are pleased to hear the sound of the river alongside you, although you can't see it. As you walk on, the ground becomes damp and marshy, and soon you have trouble finding a dry path. You weave this way and that way around a large swampy pool, and find that your feet are sinking into the saturated ground. You can try to make camp where you are, sounds pleasant, or go on a little way in the hope of finding more solid ground. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be unpleasant whichever way. I think I will go a little way on. More solid ground to sleep on sounds like a good thing. You trudge on, but find little dry ground. It is getting dark. The sun set in a blaze of fire a good 15 minutes ago, and the swampy jungle is now cool and eerily quiet. You push aside great clumps of reeds, following the twisting path of dry ground, which seems to be leading you deeper and deeper into a maze. And then, although you are half expecting it, and we are sent to another paragraph, great example of using a section break to create tension, which I talked about a while ago. And then, from the water, bursts the most repulsive creature you have ever seen. I mean... For me personally, it's going to have to be pretty grim to top the wasp spider. It's a sickly white all over like the soft underbelly of a crocodile. And indeed, the swamp mutant shares many of the crocodile's characteristics. It rears up on strong hind legs and snaps at you with a mutated alligator head. All you can do is bring up your sword to meet its first attack. There is a picture. The swamp mutant... And it does sort of look a bit like a more sinuous crocodile rearing up on its back legs. That's a wyvern-esque vibe to it. I mean, it's a big lizardy monster. Alan Langford knows how to do a big lizardy monster. Uh, yeah, it's a cracking illustration. I will say it does a look like it is having just the best time. Something about the way he's done the pose and the wide open mouth. It just looks like it's grinning because it's having just the best day. A vague vibe that it's about to hit the dance floor and strut its funky stuff, if I'm honest. Um, however, that um, flamboyant aspect aside, uh, it's a bit of a beast, because it has uh, a skill of 10 and a stamina of 16. So, for the second time only this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I'm dead. I have fallen in battle against the Swamp Mutant. Um, yeah, disappointing. I managed to reduce it to four stamina points, uh, mostly through injudicious use of luck. I've reduced my luck from 11 to, uh, to 9 by uh, firstly successfully testing my luck as I was on two stamina to just take the single stamina point just made me survive for an extra round. But yeah, it wasn't enough. Wasn't enough, unfortunately. I don't think I'm going to invoke the sausage 
finger bookmark rule on this occasion, partly because I think I've been recording for long enough, but also because my chest is still a little bit rubbish. So uh, I, I think I'll benefit from not doing a mammoth recording session on this occasion, but I will go away and play through Battle Blade Warrior, see if I can do better on subsequent attempts. Very much enjoyed this playthrough, I have to say, and I quite like the fact that um, there's quite a lot of it that is still left open for you to explore, even in the early stages of the book, if you want to play it yourself. So uh, I'm going to go away for a couple of days, I imagine, while I play through Battle Blade Warrior and write some closing remarks. I will see you in your time in a couple of seconds. Tatty bye. Okay, it's literally later the same day because I just couldn't put Battle Blade Warrior down until I'd finished delving into its secrets. Reviewing Battle Blade Warrior is quite hard because on the one hand, there's a bunch of things I want to say, but on the other hand, there's a bit where you can make a Tyrannosaurus Rex fight a Triceratops, and this is so objectively awesome that it's quite hard to talk about anything else. Sure, I can talk about how the book is generally extremely well written, but that the design side feels largely undercooked, but none of that means anything because there's a bit where a Tyrannosaurus Rex fights a Triceratops. When I came across that section, I was hit by a jolt of pure and unadulterated nostalgia that threatened to turn me into a gibbering wreck. I had forgotten that this ludicrous dinosaur smackdown was in it until I came across it, but suddenly the years were just rolled back and I was caught up in a moment of frozen childhood joy that makes any pretense at objective analysis kind of ridiculous. Although it's not going to stop me later, obviously. It's a neat enough bit of design in and of itself. You happen across a triceratops, which you can fight, but it's a tough old beast with a skill of 12 and multiple attacks. If you take the more sensible approach of trying to avoid it, you realise there's also a T-Rex hanging out in the same area. Try and tangle with that, and it's an instant death in the belly of the king of the dinosaurs. And, I mean, it's a privilege to be eaten by so majestic a beast. But, if you manage to avoid that grisly fate, you can lead the T-Rex to the Triceratops and they'll fight to the death, allowing you to make a quick getaway. The genius part for me, or at least for my ten-year-old self, is that the author provides you with the stats for both beasts and tells you you can run their fight if you want. That was the bit that suddenly came roaring back across a 30-year interval of time. I suddenly remembered doing exactly that, sitting there with the dice in order to find out if the T-Rex or the Triceratops was going to come out on top. The thrill of rolling for a monster with a skill of 14 and 3 attacks more than outweighed the tedium of having to make 5 attack rolls each round. That one completely irrelevant combat encounter between two monsters transfixed me. As an adult, if you asked me to run this fight, I'd look at the number of dice involved, the massive stamina totals, and I would sigh deeply. But as a kid, I just saw what the author intended me to see. The chance to find out who would win in a fight 
between a T-Rex and a Triceratops. Like, the only way it could have been cooler to me is if both dinosaurs were piloting spaceships, preferably X-Wing fighters. The T-Rex usually wins, of course, it's got two skill more and an extra attack, but damn it if I didn't find myself rooting for the herbivore anyway. All of this is to say that there's some things that land exceptionally well for the target audience, and that this is the true measure, I think, of the book's success. Battleblade Warrior has some issues. A few of them are quite big issues, but a fight between a T-Rex and a Triceratops, that buys you a whole lot of benefit of the doubt from me. And I still think that Battleblade Warrior is basically great, even looking at it with the more jaded eyes of middle age. In order to justify my views, though, I actually need to talk about some of the issues that make this book more of a personal favourite than a bona fide classic. It's my contention that the things the book does well actually outweigh the downsides, but first we do need to examine the things that are holding it back. The first issue is structural. Battleblade Warrior does not finish strong. A lot of the most interesting design is in the first half, and the finale feels like it kinda comes out of nowhere. Having fought your way out of Vimorna and through the monster-haunted jungles and plains beyond, you're presented with a short dungeon in which you must find the two components of a magical weapon. Find both the pieces of the weapon and make the right choice on exiting the dungeon and it's straight to the final paragraph. It lacks a satisfying showdown and the final villain is pretty disappointing. Having got the weapon, it would have made much more sense to use it to defeat some lizard men some commanders or maybe a Lizardman champion in a thrilling combat scene before returning to Vimorna in triumph. There is a feeling of anti-climax to it all, and I can't help but wonder whether a deadline got away from the author somewhere along the line. That final dungeon itself is fine as it is, but it lacks a true sense of epic scale. The setting of an utterly ruined city up in the mountains is strong, but it never has an identity that ties it into the larger story in a satisfying way. If it had been written with a team of enemy lizard men also delving in search of the magic weapon, you could have had a really thrilling race to find it before they do, and that would have kept the lizard men as the final antagonists rather than becoming more peripheral to the action in the latter stages of the book, though they do still pop up from time to time. There are some fun encounters through the dungeon. I always enjoy a room full of snakes, and I always enjoy the reanimated body of a long-dead king. There are some classic tropes on display here, but it doesn't have that conclusive quality you might hope for in the final chapter of a story. There's nothing overtly wrong with it, it just doesn't exactly scream this is the climax of an amazing adventure. Part of this is due to the relatively simple design techniques deployed by the author. He's actually not working with a palette much broader than the one we saw in Chasms of Malice. Most encounters are dealt with via a simple choice where one option leads to a fight and the other leads to something else, possibly a skill or a luck test. However, Unlike in Chasms of Malice, Mark Gascoigne has enough imagination 
to make simple choices feel consequential. And he's also not recycling the same few encounters over and over again. There's times where you are given a choice between action and inaction, which feels to me quite realistic, especially for someone as indecisive as I am in real life. It's rare for those choices to feel entirely arbitrary. There's usually some kind of contextual clue to suggest one course of action or another. But there's always the possibility, and we saw this in the playthrough, that you can make an argument for all of the available choices. It is a real shame that we don't see more use of items or proper puzzles, though. I can sympathise with the latter to some extent. Puzzles are hard to design if you don't have that kind of mind. But a few more useful items and encounters that call back to things earlier in the adventure, that would have been much appreciated. If you don't like writing puzzles and traps, then I think you need to work harder in other areas to make up for it. And there's not much variety here in, say, the spot rules for combat encounters. And that feels kind of egregious when you've got so many options from previous books to pillage for inspiration. The last big strike against Battleblade Warrior follows on from the relatively simple design tools used. It is arguably too easy. Although I died in my playthrough on mic, um, by picking up from where I got stabbed, I was able to make it through to the end without any further issues, and honestly, I should have won that combat. We had the same skill, and I had more stamina than the monster. I'm not bitter, I'm not bitter, but I should have won that combat. Uh, but yeah, I picked up from where I left off and completed the game without too many issues. There's no laundry list of items needed to make it through the final dungeon. The two items you need to finish the game are very easy to find. That means there's no real requirement to go back and play through the game again in order to look for the things you've missed. While I'm always pleased not to see completion locked behind 20 different secret paragraphs, this does air too far the other way. Because the encounters are broadly self-contained without reference to anything else in the game, and because Gascoigne plays them with a fairly straight bat, there's just not a great incentive to go back and try again, because in most cases you can just make all the same decisions you did right up until the point where you died. I don't mind game books being easy so long as there's a reason to have another crack. Demons of the Deep did this really well by giving you different endings depending on how many pearls you had found. And that was a really simple system. It added very, very little complexity to the design of the game. You just had to throw in the odd pearl here and there. Something like that would have been brilliant here. The only reason to go back and play Battleblade Warrior is literally just to find the bits you've missed. And that's why, despite everything, I still think Battleblade Warrior is brilliant. It's because, even though there were no mechanical reasons to go back, I still went back. I went back for the sheer pleasure of spending more time with the book and in the world. The secret source, the thing that made spending time with this book such a pleasure to me, was the pure quality of the writing. Technically, nicking a boat and sculling off quietly upriver is the most sensible route to take out of Vimorna. But who doesn't want to get caught up in a pitched battle? 
even if that's clearly a very stupid plan. I mean, it is a stupid plan. You'll probably wind up dying in a big old melee, but Gascoigne does an amazing job of making the chaos feel visceral and exciting, even as you dread the next inevitable fight with a hobgoblin. And I like that the best way out of this section is that one of your opponents beats you unconscious. That's a great little detail. The other option of sneaking through the enemy lines, that's fantastic fun as well. It feels like there's an entire gamebook in just trying to get away from Vimorna, to be honest. Uh, you can meet a lizard woman taking a bath, which is accompanied by an awesome picture, in which she might as well be saying, Paint me like one of your French crocodiles. Elsewhere as well, he shows a decent knack for coming up with fantasy twists on adventure fiction staples. There's no particular reason that a dance floor-ready lizard mutant should be more compelling an antagonist than a giant crocodile, but the former feels just weird enough to be truly memorable. Likewise, any idiot can stick a couple of extra arms on a monkey, though I recommend maybe not trying that in real life. But what a pair of extra arms does do is it lets you know that maybe these monkeys have got more going on upstairs than you might be prepared for. These are not your ordinary monkeys. Maybe you need to treat them with a little bit of caution. Makes the encounter less predictable. The wasp spider will haunt my nightmares for years to come, I expect. It's another great twist on a familiar trope that helps give this book its own identity. He's clearly studied how Ian Livingstone does fantasy naturalism, and if you're going to rip people off, then I always recommend stealing from the best. There's a few NPCs as well. They're not particularly well developed, but I appreciate them being there. Particularly the adventurer you can meet who has his own stuff going on, and uh, the traveller with whom you can tangle with snake people from the north who are on a raiding expedition. There's a fantastic set piece with an orc village where you can gate crash a funeral and take a bite out of the orcishly departed in order to try and fit in with the locals. That's amazing and it feels almost criminal that it's completely optional. Like there's a design lesson. Don't make your best bits skippable. Have fun skippable bits by all means, but if you've got stuff that's ridiculously good, like trying to pass yourself off as an orc at a funeral, make sure that's in the main plot. Despite the simple design of these encounters, there's a tremendous imagination on display, and Gascoigne wields words deftly to strike an appropriate mood for each one. Much like the Endless Quest book I covered last episode, he makes sure to add moments of silliness alongside the moments of darkness, but it never feels like he's taking the mick out of the world itself. Uh, it's just full of great images, anchored by strong writing that's pitched at an appropriate level for its audience. I think the writing is the strongest I've seen in a good long while. Ian Livingstone might have the edge in terms of delivering lean and evocative description, but it's a close-run thing, and the background section here is certainly one of the best I've read. Really took me inside a city on the edge and it, I think it shows you what half a decade of war has done to the people really, really clearly. It's fabulous for me. It also helps that the lizard men are one of the best baddies that fighting fantasy has to offer. Every fantasy world should have at least one evil empire, and I think the lizard men are better than most. 
They've got a tremendous visual design, which dates back from their first appearance in Island of the Lizard King. Like, the priests have two heads, some of the champions have extra arms, and they ride dinosaurs. Even the rank and file have an aura of alien menace, and they're sufficiently inhuman looking that they don't come with some of the baggage associated with orcs and goblins. A lot of people have looked at goblinoids and seen problematic elements of racist and classist tropes in how they're described, echoing colonialist notions of primitive culture and eugenic conceptions of the working class as congenitally violent and stupid. You don't get that with a Lizardman Empire, which has a chilling martial discipline and a material culture as sophisticated as anything else in Alansia. You cannot escape the othering of foreign cultures found in all fantasy species, but it does feel less pronounced and problematic in an empire that trades on the inscrutability of reptiles more than riffing on real-world prejudice. I'd like to see more of them in fighting fantasy because they do feel like the best villains in the setting to me. I was so pleased that Alan Langford came back for this one because his carefully hatched line drawings are absolutely what I think of when I picture Lizardman. Uh, I think he does a tremendous job throughout this book but the Lizardmen in particular are brilliant. Some of the issues with the encounters feeling too easy are actually consequences of the writing being too good, I would submit. What I mean by this is that Gascoigne has sometimes made it too obvious which the correct path is. He's arguably playing too fair with the player, but as a consequence of that, the narrative that the decisions generate usually sings beautifully as you make the right decisions. At times, it feels more like reading a good book than it does playing a game. And that is a weakness, but it does mean that reading this book rarely feels like a chore. It's not perfect. He doesn't always manage to write, so that coming to a paragraph from different locations feels equally realistic, but that's something that's extremely hard for anyone to accomplish. I had a terrible time with my most recent gamebook trying to ensure that all of the stupid routes by which you could get to one key plot point contained all the information I'd written into that key paragraph. There are a few areas where I did have to go back and fix problems after playtester feedback, and I feel like these little niggles with some of the transitions between paragraphs maybe not making the most sense would be things that he could easily have fixed if he were to write another game book. But sadly, this would be Mark Gascoigne's only entry, as alluded to earlier. And while there's plenty of room for improvement in this first attempt, I do feel like he could have delivered something great if he'd stuck with writing game books. In the end, he seems to have taken the decision to focus on his role as an editor, which I can't fault. It's clearly something for which he was supremely well suited, and I think most writers would be lucky to have someone like him taking care of their work before publication. It is impossible for me to separate out my appreciation for this book from the appreciation of my childhood self. When I was looking at other people's reviews of Battleblade Warrior, a lot of people seemed to find it quite forgettable and felt that its mechanical deficiencies let it down rather more seriously than I did. And while 
I generally couldn't fault their analysis, nor would I wish to. I did find myself wondering why so few of them pointed out that there's a fight between a Tyrannosaurus rex and a Triceratops, because even if I couldn't say anything else nice about this book, I think that would have been enough to make me recommend it. Well, that's enough for this episode, and indeed for this year. I'll be back in early 2023 with another bonus episode. The shortest day is behind us, and from here on, things will be getting lighter and lighter as the year slowly turns back towards the sun. It has been a privilege to spend another year doing this ridiculous project, and I am looking forward to the next 12 months with breathless anticipation. If you would like to get in touch with me, then please drop me a line at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. If you'd like to support me on Patreon, then you can do so at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Thank you so much for listening, have a great holiday, and I'll see you on the other side. Take care.